Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello, I'm Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. This is All the Things, a show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And we are live. So welcome to our shenanigans. Yes, we will have shenanigans. I was just sitting here singing Tevin Campbell. Yes. And I was just here, sitting here thinking, I don't know who that is. Yes, I was also talking about Marquise Houston from Immature. And again, she didn't know who I it was. I have no idea. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. Well, welcome to our conversation. I don't know. We just had a big, like, heat. it wasn't an argument. It was okay, just good. a very energetic discussion. See, you were coming over to my side because I'm like, that wasn't an argument. It wasn't a fight. But you'd be like, oh, no, it is. No, it was. Oh, a, no, it, it wasn't was, a fight. It, it was, was just, a, it was an energetic. We were, we were, it was passionately discussed. On two opposite sides of the, the we issue. Were trying to be passionately persuasive. Yes, when you take two opinionated women, and we go at it. So, so we had to stop that conversation so we have another conversation. So here we are. So welcome. Maybe that conversation will come up during this it's discussion. Very <laughs> so we've entitled this show um, "God's a Vision for Real Human Flourishing." Uh, this phraseology of human flourishing, in all honesty, drives me crazy. <laughs> I don't like the term, but um, it's become kind of this weird phrase, I think, uh, that really just has become synonymous with whatever makes me happy, affirm me, and therefore I'll flourish. Oh, I don't really. What's your impression of the phrase? I never heard the phrase until Kevin used it for the intro to Offcoat. I was like, oh, human flourishing. That sounds cool. Yeah. And that's what I think it is, is like, it sounds cool. But my question always is, what does that really mean exactly? And it's coming into more and more Christian spaces. I'm seeing it as an alternative to DEI, to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oh, I've never it's, heard uh, Yeah, some of these offices are now being renamed. The Office of Human Flourishing? Yeah, That's Office special. of Belonging and Flourishing. Well, belonging. You know what? Let me just keep my mouth shut. We should just keep going. So, but... I wanted us to, the reason I titled it that way was because I think that we've got to have a conversation about the creator's vision for human flourishing. Like you can't be flourishing. Apart from the creator's vision. Yeah. I think that in order to flourish as a human, you have to first be able to identify what a human is, like what it means Mm. biblically to be a human. And because, I mean, we talk about thriving and, you know, all of these things, but is it possible to do that outside of the will of the person or, you know, entity that, that designer. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if we're going to talk about like how things are supposed to work in a, in a broken world, like what are we aiming for? If we're really going to help people, we have to help them. I think according to some standard. Sorry, I was trying to give you a cue off camera since I wasn't on, but your coat is like all tucked in right here. It's just driving me crazy personally. Yeah, fix fix me. me. All right. You got to hold up your end of things here. I am. Hey, I was fixing your coat. (laughs) I'm here. I'm good for it. I am here. 
So from a biblical perspective, there are certain truths that unite all people. And so, gosh, when when we travel and we talk about certain mm-hmm. truths, we look at the first three chapters of Genesis. What yeah. is what is true about all people? Yeah. You know, all people are made in God's image. All people... Yeah, we're um, going to talk about yeah, all of that tonight. So, yeah. yeah, so these are some of the things that we, we mean when we say, you know, the the designer's plan or, you know, God's plan for human yeah. flourishing. It means actually understanding what it means to be a human person and then participating in life from that position. Yeah, we call this in our book, Creation Identity. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to do kind of a deeper dive than we do in the book, um, but kind of using that that model that aspect yeah. of, of our model because y- you would be surprised <laughs> how controversial it is these days to say that there are some things that are objectively true for all humans and all times and all places well i think the idea of objective truth itself is you know kind of being thrown out right now with the post postmodernism and yeah. you know postmodernism forward the idea of a my truth or that all truth is subjective is really what we are dealing with. So then yeah. when you make an objective claim, like all people either come in male or female, right? you're looked at like you have nine heads because it's like, where did you come from? Right. And this idea, sometimes I call this in our public presentations, like our common humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's actually becoming an increasingly controversial idea uh, that... There even is a common humanity because we are so camped out on talking about diversity first. Uh-huh. And so talking about this this concept of what we all have in common and what does it mean to engage in human flourishing, these are increasingly what? confusing and controversial ideas. As we talk about um as we talk about like the division or diversity and things like that getting to any concept of human flourishing, meaning one specific, you know, or a set of specific outcomes and goals for all people would be very difficult because everyone is different. Yeah. So So we're going to get into it. So we are live. So put your comments in the chat, interact with us. We wanted to do this as a live show because we think it'll be more fun um, and hear your questions and interactions on this issue as we go through it. Um, Celt, Celticum, I never know how to say that handle, says, interesting, I've always wondered where the term human flourishing originated. Yeah, I don't know where it originated, but boy, I see it popping up in Christian spaces more and more. So I want to challenge, I want to push back on it a little bit, that when you hear it at your kid's Christian school all of a sudden talking about human flourishing, go ask questions, go ask, how are you using this term? What's our standard? What are we doing with this? So, okay. So I had Bob pull together some links from Bible Gateway. So we're just going to start walking through Genesis one to three and kind of unpacking it. And we do always want to encourage people to go read the verses in context, but we can't be here for five hours um, reading and discussing every piece of minutia. So let's start with Genesis chapter one, um, verse 26, if people want to read along in in their bibles y'all better so. use the bible and gap on um, the bible app on your phone because people don't have time to run to the, let me get my living room bible my bible's in my bedroom just okay. <laughs> sorry go get your paper bible people short notice people all right 
Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves along the ground. Now I'm going to have Bob scroll down to Genesis 2. We're just going to read a few verses from there too. It just helps give more context. So here in Genesis 2, we're kind of zooming in on the events of creation day six a little bit more. Then God said, then God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Go ahead and scroll down, Bob. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Verse 18, then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. And finally, verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Okay, so a lot to unpack there, but I wanted to at least get the scriptures going so that we can kind of think about all of that. Yeah, let's talk about some key themes. Yeah, so what jumps out to me right away is our purpose. Um, that it says it multiple times there in chapter one that we have been created to exercise dominion mm-hmm. over, the, to, over the creation. Mm-hmm. God has kind of appointed us as his governor created us in his image. So this is a little bit of a hat tip to the ancient Near Eastern cultures where um, kings would appoint governors to reign on their behalf and then set up statues of themselves to remind all the, the people of who the real king was. And so I think that this is something that is telling us um, who the real king of kings is, who the real the real reign, the person who's reigning, but also who are the governors. And that is humans, the, the descendants of Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve as the first governors. And that is so central to our purpose as human beings, is to rule and to reign over the creation. I think that even before we look at the ruling and reigning in 128, I think that is. Mm-hmm. Um, see here. I think first, and I don't want to say first, like it's, well, yeah, it is kind of a hierarchy of of things in, in looking at our purpose is that we are creating this image. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what that means, like that he is putting his image on us and what that means for all people, the yeah. the common humanity between all people and allowing that to be our foundation for one, what it means to be a human person and two, our foundation for unity. Yeah. As, as our, I prefer to call it our common humanity mm-hmm. as, as humans. To me, unity is a little bit confusing when it comes to humanity. I can see that. Because of sin, which we'll talk about later, but... Yeah. Um, I prefer to use the word common humanity, um, that there are these like foundational truths that we have in common, even if we aren't unified. Now we could use unity maybe as like 
there's things that we have in common that makes yeah, us unified. That, that all people are created in God's image. Yeah. All people are sinful yeah. or, or marred by sin and things like that. So I think those are the things that unify us as a yeah. human people group. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I meant by that. Yeah. They're all the same species. That, yeah. Yeah. And so we're all created in his image. But I think it's interesting that even before he gives them like this mandate to go to subdue, to rule and to reign, we are also created male or female. So yeah. we are distinct beings. And he then gives us the the charge to go out and be fruitful and multiply yeah. to increase. And then we are to rule over this, you know, the family and we rule over the lands and things like that. But that, I kind of see it in, a, in an order, like you are created in my image. I'm creating you very distinctly. Go out and multiply, replicate yeah. yourselves yeah. and then rule over the things that you have replicated. That's good. And we'll kind of unpack all of that in more detail and what some of the threats are to all of that. Yeah. But um, I want to talk first as just a foundational premise about our purpose as humans to rule and to reign and to govern. Because if we go to the back of the book, if we go all the way to Revelation, I think it's interesting that, and I want to encourage people to do this as an activity. I do this in some of my theology classes, as I have students read through Genesis 1 to 3, and then have them read through Revelation 20 to 22, and compare and contrast these two bookends of scripture, the first three chapters and the last three chapters. And you notice like some emerging themes uh, that are repeated. But what I think is interesting in the book of Revelation, and Bob's got a few scriptures here he's going to put on the screen from Revelation chapter five, is that we see that in the vision of John's vision of heaven, um, there's a song in heaven and it's a, a worship song uh, about Jesus. It says, you're worthy to take the scroll to open it with your blood. You purchase for God persons from every tribe, language, and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And so this kingdom language of ruling and reigning is intrinsic to who we are. I would say it is part of our human person, even in the new creation, even in heaven. Bob, if you could scroll down to the next one, this is in Revelation chapter 20. It says, um, it's a different vision that John describes. He says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls who those who had been beheaded because of their testimony and Jesus and because of the word of God and that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They will be priests of God and of the Messiah and will reign with him. And then scroll down a little bit more to the end of the very last page of scripture, Revelation chapter 22, it says, they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more, no more night. They will reign forever and ever. So this idea of governing or reigning is not something that's just in Genesis chapter one. It is, as Monique said, you know, part of what it means to be a human person. And when we go into the new creation, 
we will rule and reign with Christ. How do you think that, what have been some of your reflections as you reflected on that the last few years of why does that matter to, to talk about with people? Well, I think, and we'll get into the threats later, but we are, we are meant to rule and reign. And unfortunately, because of our sinful nature, the ugliness of ruling and reigning can oftentimes mean I want to rule and reign over you as a person or you as a people group. And that is not something that we were meant to do in, in God's good design for us, that we would be um, enslaving people okay. or stealing people here. I'm going to take you and, you know, rule and reign over you. That isn't, I don't believe God's good design for humans. I also think that it is. A- so the exploitation that we see yeah. is a result of the curse, which we'll get to later, yeah. what happens in chapter three. But our intuition is to immediately go to ruling and reigning is bad. Mm-hmm. That's, that's wicked, but actually not it's part of god's good design yeah and the ruling and reigning you know in in the first part of genesis or you know in genesis chapter two and i think one he talks about ruling and reigning and going out and and subduing that was part of their work that was part of of what they were doing they were cultivating something and with that ruling and reigning they would create a culture of ruling and reigning and in a culture that was the ideal from the beginning yes Yeah, and so it, it it is unfortunate that our sinful humanity, you know, gets in the way of that. Yeah. And we can see what that looks like in all manner of, you know, ways and on display in our current day. But some of the threats to that are, you know, to exercise dominion is to colonize, it's to exploit, it's to do bad things. Mm-hmm. And so then we want to deconstruct all power structures and make everybody equal. But God's design from the beginning was one of, if humans are functioning in the way that he's designed them, that they will govern. Yes. And then when we go into the new creation, we will also, govern. we will also govern. We have been appointed as judges. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what it is that we're going to be judging. God doesn't tell us that part, but we'll be doing something, you know, with that. So, um, Go to the YouTube comments real quick. Uh, my friend Cherish, and I don't know if it's Cherish or sometimes Cherish watches the show, I know, with her husband, but uh, helpful comment here. Human flourishing is a prominent theme in Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, which entered the Christian scholarship through Aquinas. That's probably true. <laughs> so thank you, Cherish, or Cherish's husband, either one. Um, for that helpful comment. Okay. So another key purpose, this is one we don't talk about a lot mm-hmm. was worship. Yeah. But we should talk about that because that's a big part of why we were created. Yes. I, I, gosh, I think we see it in all things that we do. I think we see it from like Christian lifestyle and, you know, our praise and worship that we give. But yeah. I also think we see it in things like a Taylor Swift concert or a Beyonce concert or, or you know, a Justin oh, Bieber concert. Yeah, like, like, like we are created to, to worship. worship. We there we will worship something. This is why. And so those experiences that you're naming are kind of like a worship experience. I mean, I have seen people raising their hands. Yeah. At concerts, as if they were giving all of their praise and adoration to the Lord himself. So that's kind of a counterfeit, maybe. Yes. To, to the, the original goal 
that God has created us to worship, it gets siphoned off by the enemy into these other objects of worship. But we cannot mistake that we were, we are meant to worship and Mm. we worship um, because of who God is. Yeah. That's so good. I think what we see in the beginning is in the beginning, God, mm-hmm. like there's no explanation of where God came from. It's just everywhere assumed all the time throughout yes. scripture. God is there and we are completely dependent on him for our existence. And so um, then the response is one of honoring God, obeying God. God gives the man and the woman, the commands, you know, to multiply and fill the earth, not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, that there are th- ways that they ought to obey. And that's part of their worship, serving him, working the ground, governing. These are all acts of worship. And I don't think we reflect enough on how work and fulfilling our calling and our destiny and work is also is also a form of worship mm-hmm. of of cultivating and building culture goodness truth and beauty yeah it it doesn't it's i think gosh we have become so divorced from the idea that work and worship can go together i mean most people even christians are like oh man i was just saying this i'm so glad it's friday (laughs) i love my job i love what i do every day and who i do it with most days i'm just playing (laughs) but it's it's a thing where we don't show up to the office thinking, let me now enter into worship in this way. Yeah. You know, I don't think that many parents think of, you know, let me let me make my best offering of worship as I as I raise my kids. Yeah. It is your offering to God, the things that we do, not that we are saved by the things that we do. Right. But the things that we do can be and should be acts of worship to the Lord. And so when we see that in the new creation, part of our governing, we're going to be worshiping him, but also engaging and ruling and reigning. And so there we see that playing out again. Um, I think. And I, I don't know that our ruling and reigning will be separate from exactly. our worship of yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I did some study on this today, and I've heard this before, is that the phraseology in chapter two, and it might be in chapter three. Um, of when Adam was walking in the cool of the day and he was walking in the presence of God, that, that there's a connection there of what God tells them later in the law that they would walk in his presence as at, in the temple. And that there's a, there's Moses is made as the author of Genesis and of, you know, the other books in the Pentateuch that he's offering, you know, this connection of the garden as face-to-face worship and fellowship with God. Yeah. And then after the fall, that gets taken away. But if we were to read the end of the story in Revelation, we would see how that face-to-face fellowship is restored and, and walking together in the very presence of God. And so it is this... this kind of great renewal Hmm. that we see in the book of revelation or restoration. Yeah. Um, So worship is a, is a, is a big theme in the early chapters of Genesis, but sometimes it gets, it gets missed. Now the hijacking of it, the 
threats of it because we are created to worship after the fall what happens we just worship all manner of idols we just out there with justin bieber (laughs) you know it's so sad we're we're so easily hoodwinked and bamboo sucked into yeah so when i read like romans chapter one paul starts with creation and basically says here's here's all the manifestations of what goes wrong in your worship um, because of sin is that you start worshiping created things rather than the creator. It goes right back to, to the garden. Yeah. And, and yet I think it's so significant to understand that we are going to worship something because we are created to worship. I was actually looking for a verse in the Psalms that has something to to that effect i thought it was psalm 18 but um yeah we are going to worship we're going to worship something you're going to worship yeah whether it's yourself whether it's your kids whether it's justin bieber and taylor swift or the lord himself we will worship so when we think about human flourishing we have to think about it in the larger context of our purpose to rule and to reign also that our our face is toward the creator of the universe Mm -hmm. that we are oriented in our hearts toward him. That's what leads to the real best life now. And that, that is exactly what I was going to say. I think if, if someone was listening, who was like, well, so what I worship Justin Bieber or I worship this person. And, you know, so what about some of these things? We have to understand that human flourishing, the true and ultimate level of flourishing is as I think Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we need to let people know that a way has been made back to mm. God, that it is to be with God. That was the ultimate for Adam and Eve. They walked in in the cool of the day with God, and that was their for their good. That was the best life. Mm. And so we, what we see first in the fall, in the consequence, is that they are now removed from his presence. And so when we get back to Genesis, what is restored and connected that presence, that that ability to be again with the Lord. Now and we're going to go back to the ruling to the reigning and all of that, but it is the fact that I now am in true relationship. Not that I am looking through a glass dimly, but now I see face to face that I have a true relationship or or true face to face with the Lord the way it was before the fall. Yeah, and that the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God now lives in me. And as I walk with him and as part of his church, because both are said in the New Testament mm-hmm. to be, you know, the the with the presence of the Holy Spirit, they we have to understand that the larger context of that is another step in the restoring of the face-to-face fellowship. And now where is God's temple on earth? It's no longer in a tent. It's no longer in a building. It is now living in you and me. And we are walking around as a temple. And when we go into the new creation, we will be permanently in the presence of God and face-to-face. And so, from end to end, if we're going to talk about human flourishing, we've got to talk about the presence of God mm-hmm. and where that is. And if we're going to really live our best life now, 
your best life is as a Christian uh, with the true and living God, the creator of the universe living in us. Mm -hmm. Pretty, pretty amazing. Okay. Let's cover one more theme here. And that is work. You, you touched on this earlier, but I think we need to bring it out more explicitly that work is not a result of the fall. It's no. not part of the curse. No. It's part of how we, what we were created to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have just, yeah. Because of our, I would say, sinfulness and because of the way I feel like the world has gone, you know, work is or can be not all work, but work can be very arduous and something that I don't look forward to doing and something that I resent and things like that. But that isn't, I don't believe God's design for work. I don't think that um, there wouldn't be hard times with work. Like, um, you know, I'm sure that if Adam was mowing the lawn or cutting down trees or whatever, like I'm sure he was sweating. I'm sure he had to get a callus on his hands. That is the worst. <laughs> I cannot lie. No, no. But, but I, you know what I mean? Like yeah. he, he still, there was still work that needed to be done. I tend to tell young people that Adam had a job before he had Eve. We need to remember this people. This, we is, need to, this, is, this is truth. This is part of the... If we're going to talk about God's definition of human flourishing, of what it means to be a human, it involves work, but not just work. It's it's part of creating culture. It's part of uh, uh, Bob had my my husband had an uncle. Uh, I give a shout out to Uncle John, who's now in heaven, but um, he was a he was a minister and uh, kind of bivocational minister. He was also an airline pilot. But one of the most profound things he used to love to teach on is how work was part of loving your neighbor and serving your neighbor in every capacity. They don't do my work? Well, no, I'm I, I think like, I, I loved his example of um, the, he, he, there was dignity in all work, okay. all honest work, you know, where we're not talking about engaging in fraud or or stealing or yeah or prostitution yeah or, yeah but in honest work that there's dignity in all work and and through that we serve our fellow humans yes and i like to use the example of this one day i went through the drive-thru and there was a young man um he was about to give me my drink and the drink had just spilled like all over the place it was just all a mess it was dripping and he took he took the drink back as he was handing it out the window to me and he saw how it was all dripping and he took it back and he said, just a minute. And he, he got a um, paper towel and he wiped the whole thing and made it all dry. And then he handed it to me. And I thought that's the, that's a beautiful example of what we would consider kind of a menial job of working in the drive through window. And yet he was loving me as his neighbor of like, I wouldn't want to receive this wet cup but I'm going to take the time to wipe it for you, serve you and give it back to you. Give it in a way that I would want to be served. And when we look at our work through that lens, everything we do is helping to build a culture. It's building a way of thinking and being when we treat each other th from that yeah. place. Mm -hmm. And 
it's it's unfortunate that you know i think it, gosh i would hope i don't know i would didn't wasn't alive then but that we would be able to see all work as being something that has dignity and not something that's like oh well that's what these people do or that's what those people do we need to realize that without those people whoever they are we're going to be missing something we're going to be missing a service yeah and i think um it's just important to have a robust theology of work. Mm-hmm. People really need to to think about it, to talk to their kids about it. I have a teaching on my channel about teaching your kids about about work, but work is is part of our dignity. And um, I wanted to talk about a few threats that I see to work, and one is kind of this growing idea of just opting out of work yes and just existing on government assistance and i'm not talking about disabled people or people who can't work i'm talking about there is a movement the opt-out culture of opting out and just not working i think that is a threat to human flourishing i agree i also think um this could be you know a little controversial but i think our current welfare structure doesn't necessarily always encourage people to go out and remember um, that work is, you know, work brings dignity. Yeah. And I think we need to have more conversations about that as Christians. What about, um, I think part of the opt-out culture is also paying people not to work. Oh, don't get me started on that. I'm against that. I don't. I think or it, the, hurt, it harms the universal people. basic income. Yeah, yeah. I think that that now. I mean, we can't go down that lane because there's there's people on both sides who are putting forth all kind of data. But I do honestly believe that it is a harmful practice. I I do too because I think that if we believe that work is part of what it means to be a human, and it includes God's flourishing to pay people not to work who are again able-bodied is to set them up it is to harm their soul i'm concerned about that and i'm concerned about about a culture that promotes that but well, I, I i also think that those that people who promote that um again we're not talking about the exception people who can't work right we're, just, we're not talking about that we're talking about the people who can work but aren't um you know it the people who who pass those policies, I'm not sure that they are considering the idea of work as being connected to someone's dignity or the value of their soul. And I'm curious in your experience in working in social service, do you think that sometimes we, in our desire to do good, we inadvertently harm people's dignity when we remove work from their pathway to bettering themselves. Yes, I think each case is different. I think um, each person is going to be different. And I I never want to just make a blanket statement and be like, this is the way it has to be for all people. But I do think we we need to reconsider how we do, you know, our current social welfare programs and systems. Here in California, we are, I feel like, at the top tier of the give end. And so that isn't always helpful. Um, 
oh gosh, I can't remember his name right now, but there's a great book called Please Stop Helping Us. Mm-hmm. And it looks at, you know, what happens when help is given in the wrong way or with the wrong motive. This is something that we should be having, I would say, more robust conversations on, especially in the church, because it can impact the way that we vote and impact the way that we ourselves do social programs. I want to look at a couple comments here. Our friend Susanna says, work has value regardless of a paycheck. Volunteer work has value. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so glad you chimed in on that, Susanna. That's that's very true because the paycheck is not what gives us dignity. According to scripture, it is the work that we do to contribute to the building of a culture. And um, in, you know, maybe you live in a retirement community and you are contributing to your culture by volunteering in some capacity at that retirement community. When you do that, when you love your neighbor as you would want to be loved in that context, you are helping to build a culture. And Mm -hmm. that is the dignity of work. Um, The Learning Leaders Channel says, God at Work, Your Christian Vocation in All of Life by Jean Veith. Jean Veith is a very fine Lutheran scholar and I've benefited greatly from some of his books. So that's probably a solid recommendation. Um, our friends over at Brave Parenting, I was on their podcast last year, says, or it's the idols in the shape of smartphones people would rather worship than work. Boy. I said, you know. That, that's, that's, I'm sitting here for their comments, okay? Yeah, go go follow our friends at the Brave Parenting Podcast, really helping parents think through the whole issue of smartphones and social media. They're doing some good work over there. But it's true, we will worship. And it's like, if you are, um, I'm sorry, I'm patting my head in front of, front of the family. I know, sorry. what are you doing there? It, That's hey. something we do in private. Um, <laughs> if we are, and it makes me ask the question of, for parents, if you hand your child a smartphone and they learn to worship the smartphone rather than things like, you know, worshiping God or learning to work and things like that, I wonder what parents are also worshiping. I don't know. Just makes me wonder. Yeah. Uh, Alicia Moss put in the comments there about the Please Stop Helping Us book. That is a very useful book. It really is. Another good book along those same lines. It's an older book, kind of a modern classic, but it's... Um, the Tragedy of American Compassion. It's from the early 90s by Marvin Olasky. Kind of covers some of the similar ground. Okay, let's um, hear from our friends at Maven. And then we're going to come back and do a deeper dive into the image of God and how having a proper understanding of that is vital for understanding the issue of true and real human flourishing. We'll be back in one minute after our friends at Maven talk to you about their upcoming conference. The next generation is growing up in a culture where authority is undermined at every turn. And we can find examples from every aspect of culture, whether it's government or law or politics or entertainment or law enforcement, uh, the medical community. There's so many different areas where our young people are losing confidence in the authorities that are all around them. And the problem with that is that often translates into their view of God's authority. And in particular, their view of God's word as an authority. And so what we need to do for the sake of the next generation is we have got to rebuild 
the authority of God's Word so that young people then look to God's Word as a place of illumination, as a place where they can find out the truth about God and His world, and that will then light up the world around them and make sense of the world around them. We need God's Word to illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can see God's Word as the appropriate authority on all matters of life and faith. And so I want to encourage you, if you are any kind of stakeholder in the life of a young person, be at the 2024 MAVEN Conference. Our theme is Illuminate, and we are going to help you to rebuild the authority of God's Word for the sake of the next generation. Join us in Southern California on February 23rd and 24th. You can go to mavenconferences.com to register. If you are in Southern California, come out to Maven Conference next Friday night and Saturday all day. It will be in Laguna Hills. Krista and I will be there. This is the first year in a couple of years that I'm not speaking, but we will be there at a table and hugging and loving on the family. So we hope to see you there. You can register at mavenconferences.com or no, mavencom. Yeah. yeah yes. Mavenconferences.com. Yeah. You got it. You got it. Girl, that's right. <laughs> All right, so let's talk more about the image of God. We still doing that? No, just playing. Just playing. Just playing. No. (laughs) Pray for her, y'all. Sometimes I can be a handful. Sometimes. All right. All right. So let's talk about um, the image of God, human and human dignity. Um, I think one of the things that I wish more people understood. And this was something that came up a lot in our early conversations is there is no human dignity. There is no ground for human dignity without the image of God. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, it's all just determinative upon whatever I think is best. Yeah. You it's have value when con- you don't. It's consensus is what I call it. We just get some people to agree. These are the valuable people. Mm-hmm. These are the unvaluable people. Mm-hmm. And we see that time and time again around yeah, the world, around the world. And, and, but it is the Christian worldview that comes along and says, no, there's something different about humans. There is something that is so different about us that we have intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Mm-hmm. It is not based on an extrinsic issue such as my functionality yes. or my location mm-hmm. or my caste mm-hmm. or my socioeconomic status or it, my sex. Yeah. It, I have dignity, value, and worth intrinsic inherent to what it means t- to be a human person because I've been created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. I think this is a, a wildly underappreciated concept because even secular people they constantly want to borrow this idea from us when they talk about human rights Mm. human rights is an intrinsically religious idea specifically from the judeo-christian worldview yeah or they talk about the dignity of man yeah but what is the dignity of man and where does it come from yeah Mm -hmm. you why what gives me my dignity yeah 
and the idea of violating somebody's dignity. Mm-hmm. Well, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Mm-hmm. What's your standard yeah. for that? The very phraseology of human rights is a Judeo-Christian idea. Yes. You can't, you, you, it's just, we, we've got to, to understand this and, and what its connection is to our faith and our worldview. Yeah. And, and the impact that it can have on an unbelieving society. Yeah. So when we think about somebody that is disabled or has a disabled child, even a severe physical um, disability or mental disability, we don't say as Christians that person has less value because they have less function. Mm -hmm. We say that that person still has dignity. Yes. We don't murder children with Down syndrome in the womb. Now, there's some countries, I think it's Iceland. I was going to say Greenland. Has almost eliminated the existence of an entire population of the Down syndrome population through abortion. We don't do that as Christians. Those people still have dignity, value, and worth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that this is... I'm going to bring up a controversial issue. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Here we go. Not only do we not devalue the disabled, and by the way, I have a three-part teaching series on a theology of the disabled from a couple of years ago. Maybe uh, the moderators can put it in the chat. Um, But animal rights. If you saw... A dog and its owner drowning. Which one should you rescue first? Depends on how cute the dog is. <laughs> There's a video on... Depends on if the owner is a man and single. <laughs> but that's half standards. Yeah. There's there's a, a great video on the PragerU website that's asking that question. And um, I think it's an important thing to think about. Because a majority of Americans would say they would rescue the dog first. I think that's... You said a majority? Yeah. No, not a majority. I think there's a good percentage. It's like 70-something percent. Um, Ah, that that seemed a little special. It's it's a high number. I'm telling you. There's a lot of people that would rescue the dog first. I got to see that one because, yeah. All right. Well, let's say my my number's wrong. Let's say it's 50-50. Okay. But that's still not. I mean, that's not, that's not a good statistic. It, it it's a lot of people, and even if you're like hesitating about it, well, it's uh, it, it's an important question. Well, Kevin and I, Kevin and I on Offco, we just looked at a video where there was a dog on a ledge of an overpass, oh, yeah. and a woman risked her life hanging over an overpass. Like she actually climbed over the railing to go yeah. and sit on the edge. I am not that kind of person. So don't call me if Fido was stuck in the tree or on an overpass. Sorry. But I I think it raises a really important question. There's a growing number of people. Let's think of even how our vocabulary has changed. We call dogs fur babies. 
we say that we're dog parents. We buy clothes for our dogs. We treat our children, our dogs like they're children. We buy them birthday presents and Christmas presents and make them birthday cakes. We are into turning dogs into people. I think that's kind of undermines and undercuts human dignity and creates confusion. Now I know people are going to come for me. Yeah, all the dog I, people. I'm like, my, when I had, when I had Langston, yes, my dog was named Langston and he, he was named after Langston Hughes. I was a different person then, but he had his rain outfit with his little rain galoshy boots things. And he had outfits and I love Langston. He had little sweaters to make him look all smart. Traveled in your purse. He did until he got big. But yes, he did travel in my purse. But I hear what you're saying is that there are people who are opting out of children to be dog parents and where children don't even come into question simply because, you know, they want dogs. But I also think that there's a strong argument right now and they're called, oh, what is that group of people called? Um, Dual income. Oh, dinks. Dinks, yes. Dual income, no kids. Yes. There are many people who are, but they just trying to live in by inflation, trying to, you know, we can't afford no pet. We just here trying to survive. I, yeah, no, I, I, I understand it. My husband and I didn't have kids for the first seven years or so that we were married, but I just am so troubled by the whole, like Alicia O'Connell on here. She says pet worship. I, I'm, I'm concerned. Alicia, please don't start with her. Don't don't double up on with her. Goodness. I don't know that it's pet worship. I mean, it could be. You, you at least see if you and Alicia get together, y'all gonna co-sign and then it's just um goodness gracious. I I just I feel like it's a conversation that people just don't want to have is misplaced animal rights. And, well, and how a- it under it it's blurring the line between the distinctiveness of humanity and being created in his image and the kind of dog culture that pet culture that and, we and have. I think in in honesty, I can see some of your concern. I think there's a larger and this isn't the the point of the show, but there's a larger conversation going on about animal rights in general, all the way from can I marry my pet to we should abolish people like the right to own a pet at all. And so it's just a sticky conversation. But I can see how you can say, well, some people are seeking to worship their pet. I got my pet in the stroller. I, I spend, you know, so much percentage of my income on my pet. I would never have kids. I would only have a pet. I I think I can see what you're saying in this almost like a replacement of kids with pets. I mean, yeah. And, but, and, and the idea that like, if you, when I taught on this in, in my Sunday school class and I asked the question, if you saw a human and a dog drowning, which one should you rescue first? My class was very divided about this. It led to a big conversation. I think that, Christians are confused about the differences between a human and a pet because we have so much 
even our language and our vocabulary has changed in how we talk about pets. And it troubles me because then is it any wonder then that we're okay with murdering the unborn? Because we say, you know, they even, uh, if you go on the PETA website, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, they call like killing chickens a form of murder. That's a category error. Chickens don't get murdered. Murder only applies to humans. It 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 is directly in in Genesis nine connected to the image of God. Yes, and so this is the kind of blurry thinking that's out there. Yes, and it creates this confusion, and it creates it it allows you to slip one in and slip the other out. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I was thinking chickens don't get murdered; they get fried. And so I'm sorry that I had a little snicker while you were talking. I was thinking. Fried chicken, maybe because it's what I had for dinner. But yeah, see, Natalie understands what I'm saying. Natalie, Uncle Jeff is in here. I tend to agree with Krista. People are humanizing dogs and cats and dehumanizing people. That that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Animals seem to have more value in the society than the unborn in the womb. Um, See, look at Futures comment. Says, can't we elevate pets not to human level, but in realizing the blessing they can be to our lives and also continue to elevate people? They aren't mutually exclusive. Theoretically, I agree with you, but that's not how it's playing out in the culture. That's that's not what's happening. And yes, I think that you could actually have a, a theology of animals. And I have a post on that at my former employer's website, but. I don't see it as being mutually exclusive, but that's not how it's playing out in the culture. And I think that Christians don't have a very robust theology of humans, nor do they have a robust theology of animals. And so then there, that leads to this really blurry land. Yeah, because in in the first chapters of Genesis, I feel like we're given we're given some of that theology of what it means to be a human person, but yet what it means to be an animal that it, you know, it's not created with the image of God. It's not on the same level of a human and we are to rule and to reign over those things. We're to subdue those things. Yeah. And so we start to unpack some of that in those chapters. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's keep going. All right. There's enough of my little soapbox about animal confusion. Okay. Um, let's talk about Adam and Eve as the first humans. Now, this is an idea that we have baked into our founding documents at the Center for Biblical Unity that we believe we all do a position that Adam and Eve were the first humans. But there's a very particular reason why we do that is because we think that that's not only the biblical perspective, but it also is a critical part of our argument or our case for human dignity across all races mm-hmm. that with, I like how you say it is that within Adam was all of the potential for all of the ethnic diversity that we see today. Based on Acts seventeen twenty six, from one man, God created all the nations. So there had to be something in Adam and Eve, or especially within Adam as the, the, the first, human. the first human um, that allowed for, the rest of us to come about and to be able to um, have increased or decreased melanin. Yeah. And so when we think about the issue of value, dignity, and worth Mm -hmm. having in bone structure. Yeah. A first 
first parents of Adam and Eve is part of that case making that there's really only one human race, if you will. Mm-hmm. There's and science bears this out of the the genetic differences. We did a whole show with Dr. Dr. Rana about this a couple summers ago, looking into the science of how there's just really like virtually no difference mm-hmm. between us, even though from the outside we might look very different. We not twins. <laughs> we think we are sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that's another component of our creation identity. Yes. And so I think that when we look at being created in the image of God, that's that's a common humanity. But then the fact that there's a common race, that yeah. there there truly is only one race of people, different ethnicities, but one race of people is something that something else we all have in common that we aren't. God wasn't up there, you know, making Spaniards and making Mexicans and making Chinese people and making, you know, Ecuadorians or whatever. You know, he created a pair. And from those pair, we move forward. So as humans migrated over the globe, if we were to go run the clock back before um, immigrants came to America, we would see that people with darker skin live closer to the equator. People with lighter skin live in the northern regions. And these were micro adaptations that happened over time as people migrated. As people migrated. And, and those micro adaptations took place for the survival of humans. It yeah. wasn't just like God was like, hey, let that one change. No, it was that he actually cares for his creation. And within Adam and Eve, there was something that allowed for survival because extinction isn't fun, you know? So part of the human flourishing of that is knowing our common humanity, our common dignity, and that there is something that is very much the same about all of us biologically is the most basic level but i would say even our common human longings to be loved to be accepted um, see <laughs> okay <laughs> like we all like there are certain things that you know all humans need yeah i think that it's or desire it's important for us to reflect on that common humanity that we do all go back to Adam and Eve and we are not so different from each other in spite of our cultural differences or our national origin there is something that that unites us as humans that that we all have in common yes and i think that's that's kind of eclipsed today it's it, it, there's a lot of threat to that reflection of our common humanity because we are so embroiled in a conversation about our differences. Yes, and why our differences make us always and forever different. And when we look at these differences, well, I have these differences and those differences are better than yours or worse than yours. Or, you know, we just, we're constantly talking about this diversity, this difference, not and not diversity in like, Different of ethnicities, yet there's still a common humanity. No, this, this just, you go to your side, I'm go to my side because of difference. But we get a fair amount of pushback about this issue and talking about one race and our common humanity when we're in front of more progressive leaning audiences. 
it's this is a little bit of an offensive idea to them because it's seen as covert racism you know the idea that there is just one race of people i'm not taking away you know the idea that we can be one race with different cultures yeah or one race with different ethnicities but i think or that nationalities. that's or nationalities yeah. yeah i think that um that people tend to hear, well, we have one race, and so you're going to try and eclipse mine, whatever that is. Yeah. So or you're going to try and eclipse my nationality or ethnicity. Yeah, and that's not that's not what we're saying, but you know. Okay, so what else you brought up earlier? We see in the description of Genesis one is the male female distinction. Mm-hmm. A little hard to get around that, but there's a a lot of threats to that today. Yeah. I mean, we see that everywhere. You know, what does it mean to be a male? What does it mean to be a female? And, Mm -hmm. you know, is that something that is only biological now? And yet in my mind or in my heart, Mm. I'm something different and I need to be able to go with that. I know, um, oh, what is, I forgot her name now, but I think it's Kia at, um, at Woke Kindergartner. Oh, she, she has a whole channel where she explains to like preschool and kindergarten children, kindergarten age children, that you might be born a certain way and the doctors may have mistakenly identified you or called you something like male or female, but you might not really be that in your mind or in right. your heart. Yeah, that, and we just see so much hijacking of the male-female distinction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got boys going into women's restrooms and participating in women's sports and just the total redefinition and separation out of, you know, the gender bred man and, and all the gender of the, unicorn. Yeah. It's just this, um, the drag queen culture, it, this is a major threat to our creation identity that we we see on the daily. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, Sad, but if we're going to talk about human flourishing, we're going to have to have clarity about male-female distinctions. Yes, because it is part of God's design and created order. So we can't under the fly it under the banner of helping people to be engaged in affirming gender confusion. Mm-hmm. I think we have to be clear about that because... There are some versions of human flourishing that look at affirmation as being part of that. Yeah, helping people live their best life now or helping people, you know, you do you, boo. That isn't that isn't real human flourishing according to God's ideals. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, let's keep going here. Genesis 1 and 2 is also giving us God's ideal for marriage. Ooh, this is the one. This is the one where people like to... That we just... get more pushback about this issue yeah. than about race it, when we do public presentations is the conversation about marriage. And there are many threats to our creation identity when it comes to the marriage issue. I'm just going to name a few. Um, rampant di- divorce. Redefining marriage, gay marriage, polyamory, polygamy, hookup culture, rampant porn use. Now, here's the controversial one. The opt out of marriage culture. We're just not even going to get married. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a 
growing narrative in what's called the red pill community, the manosphere community, where marriage is just simply not in your best interest. Yes. Kind of like dinks and maybe children aren't in your best interest. Yeah, we'll get to Uh, that. But yes, this is the, I think the place where we receive a lot of pushback or at least when I, when I talk about identity and what it means to have a creation identity that we are meant to marry and to procreate. And and there is always at least one who want to come up and, you know, father, I need grace with tears and just all of the frustration that I would say that we are meant to marry and to procreate and they are single and they're single women. And how can you say that? And I think sometimes there's an assumption that I'm married and I'm not. And so when I let them know that I'm not married, then it's like, well, how, how now really, how can you say that? And I'm not saying that there won't be an exception to the rule, but this idea that I'm not going to get married and like this firm footing, you know, that I've put my foot down. I don't I'm need not a man. Gonna get married. I don't need him, which was the whole like culture of the nineties. I felt like in the early two thousands, we don't need no men. And you know, all men are scrubs and like all this stuff. I'm no. a strong black woman. Yeah. But you also have strong white women and yeah. strong Hispanic women and, you know, strong Asian women. And so it, it, I think in my culture and in black culture in South central LA, that's something that I bumped up against a lot. But today I feel like white and black, we on par almost with, you know, with some of our marriage and divorce statistics. But the idea that 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 isn't for me, like, I don't want to do that, isn't the way that we as believers should be approaching the marriage conversation. Well, and I think what we're seeing on the male side of the conversation is a growing number of men who are listening to people like, oh, what's the Muslim guy? His last name is Tate. His first name. Al. Um, not out. Um, what's his name? Um, it's something with an A. Yeah. Um, Andrew. Andrew Tate. That's what it is. Um, you know, he's really propagating an idea of promiscuity, and you know, just don't get married. You know, it's okay to have kids out of wedlock. Just, you know, do your thing. And it's so sad because we're breaking down God's foundation mm-hmm. for society. A society cannot continue to exist if there isn't a robust view of marriage. And to me, there's a difference when I talk to young people, there's a difference between a position of saying I'm open to marriage, but God hasn't brought the right person along yet Mm -hmm. versus saying I want to opt out of marriage. I'm not open to I'm it. I'm not open to it or I'm too afraid of it or something along those lines. Like if you're that afraid of marriage, maybe you came from a hard home life or whatever, like get some therapy, talk about it, try to understand what's happening for you. Then those, those fears can be real, you know, talk to the Lord about it, pray, talk to your pastor, your priest, work it through. But to say, like, I'm just going to be a strong woman or I'm going to be a man. The who's, feminist culture. Yeah. Or the the manosphere culture. Mm-hmm. Like, that is not a biblical posture. And I think that your posture is one of being open to marriage, but the Lord just hasn't brought the right person yet. Yeah. And and that, isn't, that doesn't mean that people won't 
go into ministry and be, you know, yeah. a full-time missionary or something like that. And the yeah. Lord uses them in a different way. It is, you know, and I, I do believe that there will be those people who won't get married, who will serve the Lord in, in a different capacity. But to just simply be like, I don't want to get married because I don't know that that's a biblical concept. I think that that is something that goes against our created design. Yeah. And so again, I want to emphasize like, what you what you brought up there on the what about ministry what i often find uh, experience when we're out on the road and this conversation comes up people are like well what about you know the great commission and full-time ministry and all of that you know i can opt out of marriage if i'm in ministry and then i ask the person well what full-time ministry are you in And like, I work at a bank. Yeah, I, well, I'm not. But, but you know, just theoretically, I'm like, yeah. okay, well, theoretically, like, yeah. if you're a, a missionary who's working in a very remote area or has a very demanding ministry and and maybe the Lord just really put on your heart, like, this isn't for you. Singleness. Yeah, and you're called to singleness. That's great. Like, I'm not here to arbitrate that. But I think the default position and how we need to have the conversation for human flourishing is God's plan is for not for people to hook up, shack up, use porn. It is to get married, stay faithful, mm-hmm. and raise children. Susanna says, singles have ministry opportunities that married folks don't have. And I completely agree. I don't know that I'd be able to travel the way that I do, you know, if I was married or if I had kids. I don't know that I would want to, you know, if mm-hmm. I if I was married or had kids. Um I hope that if I do get married and I'm, you know, CFBU is still, you know, our baby that, you know, that would be something that my husband and I could travel together and do. Yeah. Um, but I, where, where I think my rub is in singles have ministry opportunities that married folks don't have is that it's completely, it's different. It's like there there is a level i feel like of stress in in running cfbu as a single person there are oftentimes where i feel like man running cfbu even though i have the opportunity to travel and do things that a lot of married people can't do it would still be a heck of a lot easier or a less a less stress maybe to have someone that in that side yeah that yeah. partner yeah. um to be able to talk about those things and me and Krista talk all the time but she got a husband sitting right over here too okay so he'd be like look boo you can't be talking to her all night long um but you know I think that's the that's the place where it's like yeah singles have opportunities that married people don't have but at the end of the day being able to do those opportunities together I think yeah is, is it's just better it's just more because like when we look back at Genesis Adam had ministry opportunity. He was working. He was naming the things and keeping the garden and all that. And God still said, I have not found uh, a companion suitable for him. So let me bring Eve. Yeah. He was already ministering. He was already worshiping. He was already doing his thing. And that's the way I think it is in, in life too. Now, Paul talks about it's better. You know, if I could encourage you, I would encourage you to stay single. But that was during a time of, you know, a lot of rough times in the church and growing persecution and, you know, special measures for special times. But even I, then, I'm like, even with the persecution, I'm like, I surely would want a boo than to be by myself being persecuted. <laughs> All right. Okay, one last thing here, and then we got to 
hustle and wrap this up. Our shenanigans shall yeah. be done, people. But with marriage comes families, comes children. Mm-hmm. Also, a very controversial issue while we're da- when we're out on the road. You know, if people can get walk with us on the marriage question, then we get to the kid question, and we see that you know there's there's a growing sensibility of permanently opting out of kids having yes. pets mm-hmm. um in get, in pursuing your career and i'm not i'm not against having pets and i'm not against having a career but we have to have biblically based priorities yes and kids are the default now I'm not talking about people who struggle with infertility and I'm not talking about, you know, hey, maybe we're like my husband and I, we were married for seven years before we had kids and we were, you know, I was trying to get through seminary and we were trying to get established and everything and and that's fine. I'm not against that, but there was an openness to having kids Mm -hmm. there and that's a difficult thing for, for many people and there's a growing movement of we're just going to opt out of kids. I don't know how you get there from the creation mandate that says multiply and fill the earth. And this is God's plan for human flourishing is that of getting married and having children and building a, a new kingdom culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of the issue is that we don't talk like this in church. Like who's talking about the creation mandate? Who's talking about, <laughs> hey, singles, y'all should get together or <laughs> meet one another or, I hey, think that could young, be such a great ministry people, for the church. You know, y'all, y'all don't have no kids. What y'all waiting on to have kids for? Like, you know, or you guys are just married. Let me partner you with some parents. Y'all know how to change diapers. <laughs> Do you know things? Um, but we don't have these kind of conversations. And so what we do have a lot of, though, is cultural influence in the church. Let's just be honest. And the culture is saying you should not have kids. Too, there's too many people on the planet. Inflation's too high to bring a child into the world. Children are expensive. You're going to spend at least a good couple hundred thousands or something like that. If you have a couple hundred kids or not a couple hundred, but a couple kids, like you're, there's real life implications to having kids and the culture's voice is louder in the church than the church's voice is to the average parishioner sitting in their pew around this issue. Yeah. And again, there's a, there's a difference between an openness to having children and just completely opting out of it in Mm -hmm. an active intentional way. And again, we're not talking about people who struggle with infertility, but this is a very controversial question when we're out on the road. Yeah, or people who get married later in life. Yeah, or, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? For sure. And um, but the threats, abortion on demand in some states, all the way through nine months, we're gonna kill our we're gonna murder mm-hmm. our children, um, is a big one. The opting out of children, I think, is a is a threat. It's a it's a kind of a subculture, but I also think that another threat to the family is this growing kind of posture of disrespect toward parents or that our culture is engaging in separating children from their parents through the whole parental rights conversation. Uh-huh. The parents don't really have rights or that children kind of belong to all of us and uh-huh. we're a community. These are things that undermine 
God's plan of human flourishing. Yes, because there's a there's an outline for the family when we read Genesis. And so the idea that I can bring your kid under my jurisdiction, like making my state a sanctuary state or teachers who believe that your children are now our children, know our children up in here. You know what I mean? Yeah. The like we've just we our culture has very subtly moved away from this idea of what a family is to creating this community around a child that excludes their own parents. Yeah. Okay, one last thing, and then we got to wrap it up. But I want to also say on this issue is, you know, we don't in any way want to diminish the Great Commission and the production of spiritual children, because sometimes singles have wonderful ministries. Mm -hmm. Married couples can have wonderful ministries in bringing along and discipling spiritual children. That's also part of our unique call as Christians in the world. Um, but I would say that that's, that's not something that we ought to pit against the creation mandate of physical children. Although God could call some couples into a very particular ministry Mm -hmm. of producing spiritual children. And I think that's definitely been true. I think in your life of having many, many spiritual children that you have invested in and, everything. So even though you haven't had physical children, you have still participated in the Great Commission in yeah. a meaningful way. And what's so sad is I would say things like, oh, these are my babies or, oh, look at my kids, especially when I was doing children's ministry and things like that. And I could say that right to the parent. There was an idea, though, and an understanding that this ain't my kid. You know what I mean? Like, like this kid goes home, this and you, you encourage this child to be respectful to their parents, to understand the value of family and all that. But those words have been so co-opted today. Like it just breaks my heart when, you know, when, when we see things like on Twitter or whatever, and, and it's a crazy person talking about, these are my children yeah. with the expectation, the real expectation in their heart yeah. that I should be able to have some kind of jurisdiction and say over this child. You know what I mean? It, 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 no. Yeah. So behind all of this, we've been talking a lot about God's ideal for human flourishing, the creation mandate, the creation design. But then behind all this is when we turn the page to Genesis 3, we see that something has gone dreadfully wrong. And this is where we get all the threats is the introduction of sin. Mm -hmm. And sin is just this toxic mold that has spread through all of humanity it and, perverts yeah it, it perverts everything when we look at you know the the idea of what a human person is it it perverts that when we look at work it perverts that when we yeah. when we look at worship it perverts that like it pervert that is what's in it is a perversion it perverts so when our hearts are heavy when we hear about abuse toward children or families falling apart or injustices we need to understand that's not part of God's good design. Mm-hmm. That's a result of the fall. Yes. And to keep things in their proper order. But um, I want to talk about, I'm going to skip ahead here and um, kind of go back to the beginning. Because if we're going to build a program, I'm thinking about somebody like our friend Alton Hardy down in the Birmingham area. Mm-hmm. Works with... Um, Definitely economically challenged, challenged, socioeconomically challenged communities. Um, communities yeah. yeah. 
And his vision for we what we call urban renewal. I mean, we've been to Fairfield. It's when we were there, it was just a bunch of boarded up homes, yeah. homes and shops and collapsing mm-hmm. buildings. And he came in there and he's planted a church in the middle of all of this chaos and mayhem. Mm-hmm. Bought a few homes. Yeah. Building a store. Mm-hmm. Um, doing some some other things. We got to get back down there and see what some of the improvements have been since we've been yeah. there. But his vision for human flourishing is not about, you know, let's get a bunch of government programs in here. Let's get a bunch of like, let's affirm all the, you know, people's sins mm-hmm. and being gentle with them. His vision for urban renewal is let's disciple people about marriage, having children in the pop- proper order. Let's not kill our children. Let's build homes and families. Let's work. Let's work. Let's build businesses. Let's restore human dignity through God's plan. Mm-hmm. It's a very different vision of human flourishing. Mm-hmm. He struggles. Yeah. And feeling very alone. Yeah. In what he's doing there. But I also, we can also see how the Lord is working in his community and how many couples who, you know, are a part of that community that came into the church unmarried are now married. How many came in without work are now working? How many that, you know, are are moving their socioeconomic brackets, but they're doing it through God's ordained way for human flourishing? Yeah. I think that when we're thinking about, quote unquote, helping people, we've got to have a conversation that tethers it to God's vision for what real human flourishing is. And if we're removing work from helping people, that might impact their souls. Mm -hmm. If we're not discipling people about marriage and having children in, in, and doing things in the right order and not murdering our children, we cannot expect that people will be able to live their, their best life. Yeah. Well, people don't understand what it even means to get to life or a best life. Yeah. So those are some of our thoughts about human flourishing. Are there any other comments that you want to go to? No. um, Someone put in the chat a book, um, Revelations of a Single Woman Living the Life I Didn't Expect. And so I wanted to... Save that so I could check it out. It might yep. be a resource. Okay. Um, uh, children are almost like an optional add-on now, like guacamole. It's so sad. They are a gift. Just like guacamole. <laughs> yes, it is. Alicia says, I haven't considered the prevalence of opting out within our culture. I'm going to have to think about that more. Susanna says, there seems to be selfishness to the idea of not having children because of the sacrifices that are required. Yeah, and I think that that sentiment is sadly is seems to be growing. And so anyways, we look forward to your feedback. We hope you found this conversation helpful about human flourishing. And the next time you hear that that term at your... Consider what it means. Yeah, just start asking questions. What yeah. do you mean? What are what we talking mean? about what here? What do you mean by that? How, how do... What does it mean to be a human person? Yeah. And 
what does it mean to flourish and according to what definition and how does that look? And hopefully we gave you some things to think about. Now, next week, we're going to be at the Maven Conference. So we will not be here. There will be no show. It will be dark next week, but we're going to see you in two weeks with a very special conversation with our friend, Dr. Bill Roach, Mm. about critical adoption theory. And he's going to be sharing both about the critical social theories, but how that has directly impacted his life and his wife's life in their own journey to try to adopt a child. And so you will not want to miss that show. Nope. It's going to be a good one. And with that, everyone, you guys have a great week. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.